0: This is the THORN Podcast, the show that navigates the complex world of wellness and explores the latest science behind diet, supplements, and lifestyle approaches to good health. I'm Dr. Robert Roundtree, Chief Medical Advisor at THORN and Functional Medicine Doctor. As a reminder, the recommendations made in this podcast are the recommendations of the individuals who express them and not the recommendations of THORN. Statements in this podcast have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Any products mentioned are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Thorn Podcast. Joining me this week, we have a wonderful, and I should say very special guest, the esteemed Dr. Terry Walls, who is a researcher and clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa Carver School of Medicine. Uh, she's been doing some incredible work and has an incredible personal story behind all of that that we're gonna get into today. But first of all, I wanna thank you, Dr. Walls, for being on the podcast. So why don't you tell us more about yourself? I I mm-hmm. know you well and I've had the privilege of being on your show and, and actually. Yeah interviewing you and publishing your interviews. So tell everybody else what I already know.
1: So uh, I'm going to take the whole audience back uh, 20 years ago. I'm out walking with my wife, Jackie. My left leg uh, gets weak. I uh, drag it uh, home. I see the neurologist who says, Terry, this could be bad or really, really bad. I go through the workup three days uh, later. Uh, I see the neurologist three weeks later. I hear multiple sclerosis. Take the newest drugs, see the best people. Three years later, I hear tilt, recline, wheelchair. I escalate my therapy. I'm taking chemotherapy, I continue to decline. I take Tizabri. I continue to decline. And that's when I'm like, I gotta go back to reading the basic science and I begin experimenting on supplements. I've already adopted the paleo diet. I'm still declining, although it's slowed. Then I discover a study using electrical stimulation. I add that. My test session hurts really bad, by the way, but I feel great when it's done. So I add uh, the electrical stimulation uh, to my regimen, uh, my physical therapy. I've also had trigeminal neuralgia that's been getting relentlessly worse for 27 years. And it's clear that I'm heading towards becoming bedridden, demented, having to live with intractable
0: pain. And you were in a wheelchair at that point.
1: I'm in a tilt cline wheelchair. I cannot sit up. That's how weak I am. Uh, fortunately, the university and the VA has redesigned my job multiple times. I'm exhausted by 10. I'm beginning to have brain fog. I know I'm going to be forced into medical retirement because I'm beginning to have brain fog.
0: But you're still seeing patients. You're able to see patients.
1: I'm still seeing patients uh, because I, I'm able to do it from a zero-gravity chair at the university and at the VA. Now, that summer I discovered electrical stimulation of muscles. I add that. Um, I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine. I take the course on neuroprotection. I have a longer list of supplements and I feel like, okay, there's more I can be doing. And then I, I had this really big aha moment. It's like, it's a big question. Am I really doing everything that I can to slow my decline? Um, my, my physicians have always said, Functions once lost will never come back because you have secondary progressive MS. But I'm like, okay, I'll go back to meditating. I am going to redesign my paleo diet very specifically based on all everything I learned from functional medicine and from my review of the basic science. I'm already doing my electrical stimulation and physical therapy. And it's stunning. Within three months, my trigeminal neuralgia is gone. My fatigue is markedly reduced. My mental clarity markedly improved. And in another month, I'm walking with the cane and then without a cane. And then Mother's Day, we have this emergency family meeting because I want to try riding my bike, which I've not done in six years. And so Jackie says that my son should jog alongside on the left, my daughter on the right, and she'll follow. I push off and I bike around the block. My son's crying, my daughter's crying, Jackie's crying, I'm, cr- I'm crying. If you see my my eyes now, I cry when I tell that story because that was when I understood that who knew how much recovery might be possible. That would change how I think about medicine. It would change the way I practice medicine. Uh, and then interestingly enough, my, my chair of medicine at the university, when he you know, saw me walk into his office for the first time in years. And I told him my story. He gave me the clinical job of writing up the case report, which I did. Your case. My case. Yep. I said, like, your my, own case report, my own case report. I said, do you really do this? I don't know. Yes, you do. And you're doing that with your treating medical team. And that's your assignment. So I saluted and said, OK, I'll do that. Once we had that written up, he called me back and said, now that we have a protocol, You're going to do a safety and feasibility study and you're going to change the focus of your research. I'll get you the mentors. You're going to now do clinical trials. And so we began the first clinical trial in 2010.
0: Trials using your protocol that you Basically using
1: my protocol. And we uh, consented people with secondary and primary progressive MS. Uh, We had 20 folks, everyone got the intervention. Uh, And the question was, could people, who are you know, pretty disabled, because if, if you have secondary progressive MS, you're far enough along. There's usually gait disability, uh, cane walkers. Could they implement everything that I was doing? Uh, the meditation, the exercise, the e-STEM, the targeted supplements, uh, did we hurt anyone? And then what was the effect size?
0: And did you have to do a lot of convincing to get this protocol together or did your treating physicians say, Hey, you're a miracle and we want to reproduce this in everybody that we treat
1: so interestingly enough when i changed the way i practice and i'm focusing more and more on diet and lifestyle and a few targeted supplements my clinical partners complained i'd go meet with the chief of staff uh and he said terry what's going on people are complaining about you
0: complaining but not the patients not patients the patients no no, no. The,
1: the patients were thrilled because we were having yeah. uh great results uh, and now, actually, in retrospect, I'm, I'm very grateful that they complained, and my chief of staff, I, I had brought my scientific papers and went over them with them. It's so, okay, Terry, but w- what you need to do is learn how to talk about this in the medical record, and because uh, I see you're, you're giving talks in public now, so you got to learn how to talk about it in public, because if there's an anonymous complaint that you're not practicing the standard of care, you'll go through a medical audit, I don't want you to lose your license. So then I got sent to meet with the um, uh, head of the Complementary Alternative Medicine Clinic at the university. And I I became much more mindful in my clinical notes to say, I'm not doing FDA approved treatments. Uh, I am working on improving the health and physiology of your cells. And then I'm monitoring your blood pressure and your blood sugar uh, in your medications so you don't accidentally become over-medicated. And as soon as I started Constructing
0: my medical notes that way, you know, my partners were happy. As long as you were covering, you it was basically covering your A, as we say.
1: Absolutely. A, a couple of years later, the uh, VA chief of staff uh, and the chief of medicine pulled me out of primary care, and had me create my own clinic. So I, I got a few people at first, had great results. Then I got a few more, and then the flood
0: came. Suddenly, people were standing in line.
1: Yeah, the, uh, people were standing in line. And then I'm giving quarterly reports uh, first to the chief of medicine, chief of the pain service, chief of specialty medicine. And, and, you know, the VA has an electronic medical record. So we could show that blood pressures were improving, blood sugars were improving, and medication use was declining, including narcotics.
0: So you realize all of this is basically challenging the fundamental paradigm of how medicine is practiced, which is the notion that once you get a chronic illness of any kind, whether it's MS or rheumatoid arthritis or diabetes, that inevitably there's going to be a decline, right? And the best you can do is slow it down. I mean, that's the primary functioning premise of medicine, isn't it?
1: Oh, you know, that is. And I'll tell you, the other thing that was really interesting. So when I first, had my recovery and you know i'm thinking very differently about disease and health and i'm getting people convinced to eat these radical things known as vegetables and to walk vegetables and (laughs) and, you know take vitamin d uh my chief of staff said now terry people are telling me that you're using the same protocol for everyone you know you (laughs) can't do that (laughs) you cannot do that and and so i have my you know armful of papers and, and i said to john now john I know all of our cells have mitochondria. They all have cell membranes. That's what I'm focusing on.
0: So you're really treating the person. You're treating the person. You're not treating the disease. You're not saying, well, MS is a disease and it's you know, an autoimmune disease. And here's the pathway that's abnormal. Here's the cytokine that's a problem or B cells or whatever. You're just getting the person healthier. Correct. We have to work on the wellness, the
1: self-care, the nutrition it's a clinical decision. Do people need to go immediately on very potent disease-modifying drugs to get their disease under control? And how long should they stay on their disease-modifying drugs? How do we get them off their disease-modifying drugs? Because we know as people age, the side effects from the disease-modifying drugs increase
0: yep. and the yep. benefits decrease, yep. you know, over the age of 45 in particular. I think an important take-home message for people is that Uh, you're not just what we call an N of one, right? It isn't like, well, this is a miracle, but you just got lucky. You're saying these principles are applicable to a much larger population.
1: Yeah. You know, and furthermore, we've done clinical trials. We've Mm -hmm. done four clinical trials. Uh, uh, The first one was everybody got the intervention. With Mm -hmm. progressive MS, you expect no one to improve. And we had a Remarkable reduction in fatigue, improvement in quality of life, improvement in cognition, and half those folks had significant improvement in motor function. Then we started doing randomized trials. And again, our, uh, in all of our randomized trials, uh, people were able to implement the diet. Uh, and we did simplify things. We went down to just studying just the diet, but they could implement the diet and have significant improvement in quality of life, reduction in fatigue, and improvement in motor function.
0: So this is something that can be applied anywhere in the world. I mean, it's not like well, people have to come to you in Iowa and take your secret sauce. This is something you're saying. Hey, it's not, it's not that complicated. There's some principles involved. Correct. Correct. When I first started
1: doing this, and I, you know, figured out the foods that were aligned with the nutrients I was taking in supplement form, I had food lists. But then when I started teaching my vets, I needed to come up with principles to teach the concepts that could be easily understood. I wanna be sure that my vets are not getting hungry. Um, And so I'm telling them the goal is nine cups of vegetables a day and non starchy fruits. So things like uh, berries. Uh, And we're stressing green leafy vegetables, cabbage family, onion family, mushroom family vegetables, and things that are deeply colored like um, beets, carrots, peppers, uh, tomatoes. Um, And then I sort out, are they vegetarian? Are they meat eaters? If they're meat eaters, I want them to have meat, fish, poultry, preferably organ meat, uh, such as liver, uh, once a week. But we also have people who are vegetarian for their deeply held spiritual beliefs. And so we created uh, vegetarian options
0: as well. So here's the kind of a core question for you is one, as you know, the Tecfidera, one of the more popular drugs for MS, supposedly works by activating the NRF2 pathway, which is I sometimes call that the broccoli pathway. Why not just tell people to eat broccoli or broccoli sprouts or take a a supplement, you know, like broccoli seeds?
1: We are uh, I'm working fast and furiously on a grant proposal right now, uh, Bob that will investigate uh, weaning people over the age of 45 off first-line drugs, uh, which include TECFIDERA. So we'll see. We'll see if I'm able to get that study funded or not.
0: And what about uh, omega-3 fatty acids? Do they play a big role in all this? That was certainly a very big role
1: in my recovery. Uh, That's essential nutrient that we've included in all of our clinical trials because it plays a key role in the nerves being able to repair themselves. It will play a key role in the neurite or the axon development. Um, it's going to play a key role in uh, synapse uh, and, of course, myelination.
0: Are there any other nutrients that you say are like really key that you could either take in a supplement or take from food? That
1: I think it's also key to get plenty of vitamin D. Now, our ancestors were outside 24-7, so they got plenty of vitamin D from their skin. Uh, But most of us are inside. uh, We work inside. We do a lot of recreation inside. So nearly everyone in my clinics, in my therapeutic lifestyle clinic, um, were severely vitamin D deficient. Now, in my clinical trials, now the neurologists are getting more on board with uh, checking vitamin D and treating uh, vitamin D insufficiencies. If so people it, are ta- uh, But I'm going to yeah. follow up one more, uh, yeah. Bob. Uh, I think it's important if you're taking vitamin D, take vitamin K2. Because if your vitamin D, as your vitamin D goes up, I'll be able to absorb more calcium. And if I don't have enough vitamin K2, that extra calcium may deposit on my heart valves and blood vessels. So if I'm giving people vitamin D, I also like to see them uh, take vitamin K. Now, if you have lots and lots of greens, the bacteria in your bowels will help make more vitamin K.
0: So um, important point here, you don't think uh, the vitamin D is just useful for prevention. You think even after somebody has been diagnosed it's important to get your levels off because I, oh, I know some neurologists say, well, it's only, it may be involved in keeping you from getting MS, but once you have it, who cares?
1: The studies that, I, that I've looked at uh, have been pretty consistent that if your levels are the top half of the reference range, your risk of relapse is significantly lower. Uh, and so in terms of relapse risk, definitely uh, I'd want to have my vitamin D in the top half of the reference range. Uh, now, in terms of clinical worsening, uh, uh, people have not looked at that data nearly uh, well enough, um, so I, I, can't, uh, I can't specify, but my, my preference for all of my patients uh, is to get your vitamin D up. And, in, you know, in my therapeutic lifestyle clinic, where we're taking care of people, you know, with autoimmune issues, not just MS. Uh, and then the comorbid problems of anxiety, depression, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, obesity. We were try- we're working to get their vitamin D levels up uh, to the top half the reference range for all of them. And I was talking to all of those people about the importance of making sure they had plenty of vitamin K.
0: I want to touch on something that's in the news right now, and a lot of people are talking about it, and it may have some impact on management, which is this new study that was published uh, in the from data from the military. Yeah. Um, showing that, quote, uh, Epstein-Barr virus is the, quote, cause of MS. So um, I wonder maybe you could tell our yeah, listeners let's talk a little about bit about that. the study, yeah.
1: Yeah, so the military is uh, uniquely qualified because they get blood from people when they come into the military. And while they're in the military, they keep getting blood from the service members. So they've been able to monitor uh, using uh, frozen blood uh, the impact of of what's changing uh, over time. There appear to be 16 different microbes that are associated with a higher risk of developing MS in the Epstein Barr virus, we've known about for a very long time. Now, this paper saw that uh, there's only one person who did not have a prior uh, episode of Epstein-Barr virus who developed MS. Everyone else uh, had.
0: One person out of what, uh, I can't remember the number, was it like eight, 600 people, 700 people? Uh, I think it was 800. 800 uh, people. uh,
1: 800 or 801. And they also note that 95% of the individuals uh, have uh, been exposed to Epstein-Barr virus. So nearly all of us have, but not all of us are getting uh, multiple sclerosis or other autoimmune disease. Uh, And so the the researchers said there's clearly other genetic and environmental factors that play a very important role. So you you have a genetic vulnerability. You're going to get one of these 16 different microbes, and most of us get Epstein-Barr virus, and cytomegalovirus, and coronavirus, and many of these. Different 16 microbes that increase
0: our risk. So does that mean a, if a teenager gets infectious mononucleosis, that they should be worried? Or what, what would you say to well, a parent that so, my kids got mono? And So
1: it's the same advice I would give to all parents of your kids. You want your kids to have long and healthy lives. So teach your kids to cook, eat vegetables, teach them a mindfulness meditation practice, encourage physical activity so that they will be uh, more resilient. And that will decrease the likelihood of that Epstein-Barr virus reactivating and then contributing to the development of an autoimmune process.
0: In other words, there is evidence that we can ward off autoimmunity. We can keep it from happening even if, quote, the cause is Epstein-Barr virus, you know, the obvious thing, millions of people get Epstein-Barr virus and not that many people get MS.
1: We've known for a long time that you have a genetic predisposition, a, an infectious exposure, plus, quote, unknown genetic environmental factors mm-hmm. equals mm-hmm. autoimmunity. We've known that for uh, over a decade, and the evidence keeps getting stronger that Epstein-Barr virus is a very strong player, but it's not the only player in this. And just because you have Epstein-Barr virus does not mean you're going to develop autoimmunity. Most of us have had one or more of these 16 microbes uh, present. And and the other thing I I want to remind your listeners, uh, Bob, is that when I went to medical school, probably when you went to medical school, we were taught that our bodies were sterile, that the Mm -hmm. urine was sterile, (laughs) the blood was sterile, the brain was sterile, uh, the lungs were sterile. Uh, and that our immune cells, you know, were we're very effective that way. We now know that we're not sterile, that our immune cells are keeping all of those microbes we've been exposed to in check. So if we don't keep them uh, effectively in check, they're much more likely to lead to a autoimmune type of
0: diagnosis. In other words, you want a healthy gut microbiome,
1: you want a healthy gut microbiome
0: among other things
1: yeah you want a healthy amount of exercise sleep appropriate cortisol in the morning uh, resolution in the evening appropriate melatonin in the evening good sleep there are all these lifestyle factors that my partners you know used to be you know beside themselves that I'd be talking about this multimodal lifestyle approach to treating complex chronic disease but That is what you have to do to maintain your immune cell competence so they can keep all the microbes in check so I do not develop autoimmune processes that lead to an autoimmune diagnosis.
0: Why don't we take a little break right now and we come back, we can answer some questions from the audience that I think will explore some of the concepts you're bringing up in even more detail. So hold on, everybody. We'll be right back. Tired of bloating, gas, and other digestive discomfort? Help keep your gut happy and healthy with premium probiotics, digestive enzymes, and other innovative solutions by Thorne to support optimal gut health. One example is Thorne's Floramin Prime Probiotic. This shelf-stable and stomach acid-resistant probiotic blend offers everyday GI and weight management support. Take control of the health of your gut. Visit thorn.com to explore probiotics, digestive enzymes, and other ways to support a happy and healthy gut. That's T-H-O-R-N-E dot And we're back. So now it's time to answer some questions that have come in from the community. Our first question this week, for Dr. Walls, comes from a listener who asked, what are the warning signs for MS? You know, but typically there
1: is a prodrome for autoimmunity, MS, inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, is that goes from two to 10 years. Fatigue, uh, pain, migraines for women, infertility, endometriosis. Uh, so people will have that. And then they may have a sensory disturbance, uh, numbness, tingling, uh, uh, that's very common. Uh, Some stumbling, also very common. Uh, 20% uh, optic neuritis or sudden blurriness of the vision or very dim gray vision in one or both eyes.
0: And this can go on, this can happen for years before they get a formal diagnosis.
1: Typically people are having symptoms uh, that have been going on for five 10 even 15 years prior to getting a diagnosis
0: and that because then they kind of imply that if this the process that leads to ms is going on it's kind of smoldering for a long time there's time for intervention too like don't in other words don't wait until you've got a full-blown diagnosis
1: i'm trying to get get the word out if you have chronic fatigue pain chronic migraines uh, pelvic pain infertility that is the time to begin the wall's protocol Because you could probably stabilize and reverse many of those processes and completely resolve them.
0: So here's a kind of segue to that, which is how does your protocol differ from a basic paleo diet?
1: So I want to remind everyone, I went paleo in 2002. I hit the wheelchair in 2003. And I was meticulously gluten-free, dairy-free, very careful paleo eater, but continued to decline for another four years. It wasn't until I redesigned my nutrition based on what i learned from, uh, yes, reading the basic science, uh, reading functional medicine, and then adding the lifestyle components, the meditation, the exercise, the stem. I, I do uh, take some foods out, but I'm much more prescriptive on what to
0: be sure that you are eating. And that is there, what is it, nine a day? Nine, yeah. The goal is nine, nine cups. cups a day. Nine Nine cups. You're,
1: if you're a petite lady, you know, and we have some very petite people in our study, you know, four foot 10, they're not gonna have nine cups of vegetables a day. So the goal is you have your protein source and then you have greens, uh, cabbage family, onion family, mushroom family, deeply colored uh, according to what your appetite will allow.
0: So here's a, a segue from that question, which is should people without MS follow this diet? Is it useful for anybody else?
1: Yes, yes. So we use this clinically for people with all sorts of autoimmune issues, inflammatory bowel disease, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus, psoriasis, and any of the hundreds of autoimmune issues. And many of these people with autoimmune issues will have comorbid anxiety, depression, high blood pressure, insulin resistance. And if you want to have healthy aging, absolutely follow the diet.
0: It's not just an MS diet. It's,
1: it's a- not just an MS diet. Absolutely not.
0: And uh, I see we have some other questions. Can people have coffee on your protocol? What about tomatoes? Okay. Potatoes, I assume nightshade. What about nightshades, things like that? So
1: well, let's, let's talk about coffee first. So coffee, yes, you can have coffee. What I ask my patients is when you have coffee or tea, does it or, or Yerba Mate, uh, all of which have caffeine in them, does it keep you up at night? Do you sl- have good sleep? If it interferes with your sleep, you have to have less coffee, less tea earlier in the day, and you may have to eliminate it because of the caffeine and its impact on your sleep. Um, And now for the question about tomatoes and potatoes. So I've designed the Walls diet to give people a lot of flexibility according to their clinical circumstances and to what they and their family can successfully implement. So we have basically four levels of the diet uh, levels one, two, and three, and then an elimination diet. The uh, nightshades, so that's tomatoes, potatoes, eggplants, and peppers are taken out if you're uh, doing the el- elimination diet. And the people who will likely benefit from elimination diet are folks that have joint involvement, arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, uh, systemic lupus, or inflammatory bowel disease, or they have been doing the walls diet and haven't gotten the level of response that they were looking for, then I go ahead and take the nightshades out for three months, and see what kind of uh, impact we have because that that is the most therapeutic, but it's also the hardest. So, therefore, in my clinical practice, I usually have people start at level one, which is gluten free, dairy free, nine cups of vegetables, and we either have a vegetarian option or a meat eating option
0: depending on the person's spiritual beliefs. So you're not automatically of the mind that nightshades are bad for everybody. You just think- for Oh, no, no, for, individuals-
1: the, for the vast majority of nightshades are great foods. I can have tomatoes. I can have eggplant. I can have peppers if I, as long as they do it on an occasional basis. If I did it every day, I'm more likely to have my face paint turn on.
0: How bad is cheating on this diet if people say they go out to restaurants and and they're with their family? You know, they feel kind of guilty if they're doing your program. I mean, my guess is that you're not telling people, don't, 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 you know, avoid, avoid, avoid. How I approach this is I try to
1: teach people how to use the biosensor that they have built in. Uh, And for me, it's very easy. I have trigeminal neuralgia. So if I get exposed to foods that are a problem, my face pain will turn on mm. uh, and therefore, you know, I'm, I've learned to be very, very careful in my diet. Um, and some people have visual problems. Others have uh, uh, sensory disturbance in their hands or the feet. And so my advice is, you know, start the diet that, you know, you can hundred percent do level one, or, or, or for some it's like, you know what, all I can do is I will do the Mediterranean diet. Like, like, okay, that's fine. Do that 100%. But whatever diet you're going to do, do it 100% and watch how your body's responding. If you go off your diet for whatever reason, whichever dietary plan that you've chosen, how did your body respond? Did you have a flare of visual problems? So you couldn't see it out of your right eye. That's a big signal. Did you have hand numbness? Uh, you know, I get a huge signal when my trigeminal neuralgia turns on. So over. 15 years now, I've, I've developed a, a lot of nuances with what I will do based on paying attention to how my body responds.
0: So people shouldn't feel guilty if they happen to cheat for some reason, but they should pay attention to Correct. their biosensors, as you said, like, okay, it, it, I cheated. What happened?
1: What happened? It, and the other thing I, I would tell people is there is a, a huge difference between doing whatever dietary intervention that you've decided to do at 75% and at 100%. If I did a scientific experiment at 75%, I just, I'm just gonna get trash results, I'll have no idea. So uh, to all the listeners, you are the principal investigator of the most important experiment, uh, which is your life. You want to know if the interventions you are doing are going to help you or not. Therefore, if you've decided to do an intervention, whether uh, a diet, or a meditation, actually do it 100%. And, and my challenge to people is try the diet, whichever diet plan that you want to do 100% for 100 days, and see how you feel. Don't cheat for that 100 days. And then you can experiment and decide how uh, rigorously you need to follow up.
0: So along with that is, uh, we've already talked about vitamin D, and we talked about the omega-3 fatty acids and fish oil. Are there- other vitamins that people really should be taking as part of this protocol, if they're going to dive in. So uh, a couple of things that I um, I think are really useful.
1: Uh, one is uh, NAC, N-acetyl cysteine, uh, that can really uh, uh, help. Many of us are uh, low in our sulfur amino acids, and your body can met- can take n to make a, a number of key um, Neurotransmitters, very uh, very helpful. Um, I also think it's likely useful to take a good multivitamin. Uh, I would do that as well. Um, I would so take your B
0: vitamins, something with B vitamins and a few minerals and
1: B vitamins, a few minerals, uh, and you know, ideally, in addition to getting your homocysteine, you are uh, there are a few other key labs that I would encourage everyone to know. Um, So your vitamin D level, get a homocysteine. I would also get a glucose and insulin. So you can see if you're developing insulin resistance.
0: So keep that sugar down.
1: Keep that sugar down and keep the insulin down. Some people can have a normal blood sugar and a normal hemoglobin A1C, but their insulin is very, very high and they are developing insulin resistance. They're on the way to metabolic syndrome. And if you develop metabolic syndrome, you will be much more likely to have a severe um, um, uh, MS. You're more likely to have relapses. You're more likely to have early disability, more likely to be needing a cane, walker, wheelchair,
0: and more likely to have early cognitive decline. So uh, uh, one of our listeners wants to know how long is it going to take for all this to work if you dive in and you do the walls protocol take the supplements so uh
1: let me uh give you the feedback that we saw in our therapeutic lifestyle clinic uh and i'll talk about my clinical trials so in the therapeutic lifestyle clinic i'm seeing people with a wide variety of diagnoses a lot of autoimmune problems some mental health problems uh high blood pressure um, uh, metabolic syndrome, prediabetes, diabetes. diabetes. So lots of diagnoses, main complaints were usually fatigue, pain, and poor mood. Even, even though they had lots of those diagnoses, we uh, get them, uh, on, uh, fix their vitamin D, add a B complex, add fish oil. And I would put them basically on level one as a vegetarian or level two, uh, if they were a meat eater. So Walls or Walls Paleo. And I'd see them every month. Uh, at the first month, uh, people would often say, you know, this is the first time I feel like maybe pain is letting up. And I'm not quite, it's a little easier to get, get on with my spouse and my kids. So they're, they're a little less irritable. On the second month, they're very clear, like it's very clear I'm having less pain and I'm definitely less irritable. And on the third month, nearly everyone had uh, less fatigue, less pain. And it's also in the third month, a lot of these guys were uh, young men who had come, had served uh, in the Iraq war, uh, uh, roundtree, So they, were, they had lost uh, erectile function and lost a lot of libido. So it was also common in the third month and that, that one might be, take three to six months. The guys would come in and say, doc, my love life is coming back.
0: Oh, so
1: they're pretty excited about that.
0: (laughs) That's pretty exciting.
1: Uh, They're very excited. Uh, And uh, they're also now losing a lot of weight. And the ladies have been losing a lot of weight. And so they're, they're excited about the fact that they've lost weight. But if you ask the ladies, how's your love life? They're like, well, actually, I am more interested in sex now. And I'm having a lot less pelvic pain. So that happens, that shows up between three and six months. In my clinical trials, consistently at three months, fatigue is down, quality of life is better, mood is better. And and improvement in motor function begins to show up around, most often between six and 12 months. And I think the reason it takes longer for the motor function to show up is that uh, you have to build muscle mass. And uh, that's a longer process. Decreasing the inflammation in the brain, uh, decreasing the microglia reactivity can happen relatively quickly if we improve the gut microbiome uh, and if we are doing the diet and lifestyle stuff.
0: Now, I remember you telling me a while back that it's more important to go with how a person is feeling, how they're doing clinically, than to look at those brain scans. Because the neurologists look at the brain scans and say, oh, you still got... White matter lesions, and look—it's you know nothing's different, and yet the person is out of their wheelchair and yeah. walking around and feeling better. So the the brain scan is not the be all and end all.
1: You know, I was talking to um, uh, my neurology colleagues uh, about about uh, this as we're designing our uh, future trials, uh, and my more senior MS neurology expert uh, said. The most important is the clinical response. Is the person having relapses? Are they getting? Are they stable clinically or are they getting more disabled? Because if you change the disease-modifying drug treatment uh, based solely on the scan, when someone is doing well, you're going to run out of drugs mm-hmm. because there's more activity in the scans that come and go. What really matters long-term is are they having relapses and are they doing well or not? Now, he's not going to feel comfortable ignoring 20 new lesions. But would he feel comfortable ignoring two or three? Uh, The answer was yes. He would feel very comfortable ignoring two or three. He would not feel comfortable ignoring 10 new lesions. But but if you had 10 new lesions, you're probably going to have have symptoms.
0: You're going to have symptoms. So one last question. Um, Is there anything that you're really excited about researching, any particular questions about the intervention that you want to well, do a study on is you know any anything that's like burning in your mind so um, we're getting ready to
1: start a new study uh comparing uh, a ketogenic diet uh the walls elimination diet dietary guidelines we will have mris at the beginning and at two years and then uh the next thing that i i really want to investigate are are there things that we can do to help people find a off-ramp from DMTs who are willing to do diet and lifestyle? Uh, I think, you know, when I when I have this conversation with my neurology colleagues, they agree that that's a a, a very important clinical question that they would like have to have help answering. So I'm like, okay, that's exactly the kind of question I'd like to uh, investigate further.
0: Well, Terry, I, I have to say that, Every time I talk to you, I'm just blown away by uh, how impressive your work is. And that the main thing that I get from it is that uh, you're very clear there's cause for hope. That when people get diagnosed with something like MS, they think, oh, uh, I'm, I'm stuck now. You know, I have this chronic disease and, and there is no hope. And and your whole message is about hope. And it's evidence-based hope. That's what we should call that. Evidence-based hope
1: evidence-based hope and there is so much that is under your control that will change the course of your disease. You can make choices that will accelerate your disease or you can make choices that will stabilize and very potentially remarkably regress your disease.
0: So it's all in your hands folks.
1: And at the tip of your fork.
0: At the tip of your fork. So, folks, that's all we have time for this week. Uh, again, Dr. Walls, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. I hope that we can have you on again. Uh, where can our listeners go to follow your work if they want to get in touch, if they want to see you or, or find out about your protocol? I know you have your book uh, and website, I think.
1: Yeah. So if you go to Terry Walls, that's T E R R Y Walls, W-A-H-L-S, Dot com. That's our website. And if you add in forward slash diet, then you'll get a one-page handout that summarizes the diet. That's perfect for your refrigerator.
0: Wonderful. That was a uh, professor and researcher, Dr. Terry Walls. As always, thank you everyone for listening. If you like what you heard, tell a friend about our show. And until next time, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Thorne podcast. Make sure to never miss an episode by subscribing to the show on your podcast app of choice. If you've got a health or wellness question you'd like answered, simply follow our Instagram and shoot a message to at ThornHealth. You can also learn more about the topics we discussed by visiting Thorn.com and checking out the latest news, videos, and stories on Thorne's Take5 daily blog. Once again, thanks for tuning in. And don't forget to join us next time for another episode of the Thorn Podcast.